the last year or so, you've been hearing me talk about Active Pass, our annual membership here at Velo News that includes, oh, today's planned coaching, entry to Royal Massif events, Velo Press books, exclusive industry deals, and so much more. Hey, I have some big news today. We have changed the name of the membership to Outside Plus, and we've packed a ton of new cool stuff into the overall bundle. Uh, first off, we're not taking any of the old perks away from the Active Pass bundle, but we are adding more. Uh, like what? Well, you get a one-year print subscription to Outside Magazine. You also get a premium account with Gaia GPS, the GPS app that allows you to explore detailed maps of your favorite riding or hiking destinations, even when you're offline. Never get lost again, folks. Even if you don't have cell service, you can find out where you're going with Gaia GPS. You get a photo package from Finisher Picks, the event photography company that's at all the Roll Massif events and many other events out there. You also get access to a new Roll Massif event. That's right, the Enchanted Circle Sportive, August 28th in Red River, New Mexico. That event is free to Outside Plus members, and you also get 25% off to all the other Roll Massif events. What else is new? Online yoga courses from Yoga Journal, skiing and backpacking video tutorials, and meal plans and recipes from clean eating and better nutrition. All that goes into the bundle that already included today's plan, coaching, Velo Press books, magazine subscriptions, industry deals. There's a lot in there, and the price has stayed the same. That's right. $99 for a 12-month membership to Outside Plus. There's a lot to learn there. I suggest you all check out velonews.com forward slash Outside Plus, and you can read up about all the perks included in our new membership. Okay, let's get on with today's podcast. Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a yeah, it's a pretty busy Tuesday here at the home offices uh, in Boulder, Colorado, where I am settling back into uh, my my home after a few days spent in eastern Kansas. That's right. Myself and a sizable contingent of Velo News staffers were out at Unbound Gravel and on race day, I was so honored to be uh, placed in a Jeep. Uh, and zipped around the course to be able to see what was going on and watch the action and watch the struggle and see the athletes grimacing as they went from mile 25 to 50 to 100 to 150 and the wind picked up and it got hot and everyone just seemed to go from really stoked to really suffering to then being really stoked again at the finish line. Unbound gravel was an amazing experience. If anyone has ever curious about going to a big gravel race, I definitely recommend that one. Even just to go check it out, um, we had a really great time there. And if you've been going to VeloNews.com, you can see all of the uh, great coverage we've been doing. Um, today's podcast is all about Unbound Gravel. We are going to break down some of the action at the front of the race. We're going to have a large discussion about what it meant to be back at a large mass participant race and some of the feedback that we got from the many, 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 many participants uh, that we talked to about you know, what it meant to be back at the race. And second part of the show, we're gonna hear some audio clips, sort of a super cut of audio clips that I have put together of participants that I spoke to throughout the weekend. Most of them are from the finish line, taking us inside their individual experiences at Unbound and talking about what this very long and painful and special day on the bike meant for them. Um, to help me break down 
this year's Unbound Gravel. I am honored to have Ben Delaney as a co-host who did Unbound Gravel. He did all 206 miles of it. He had a great finish. He looked strong and somewhat coherent at the finish line. Um, ben Delaney, before we get into, you know, the who won and what happened and the dynamics out there, um, give the listeners a sense of the emotions that you felt um, at the finish line. So many things. I remember. So this is the second time I've done this long, foolish endeavor called now called Unbound Gravel. I remember before I did it, the first time I asked a buddy who had done a number of these things. Well, Chris, what, what happens if I crack out there? And he just laughed. He's like, man, the day is so long. You're going to crack multiple times. And still be able to come back, and um, so it was the, the the varying emotional roller coasters that everyone goes through, and how they align at some points and and uh, diverge at different points is is a big defining factor of that race. And I think for most people, as you said at the at the finish, there's just uh, a lot of wells up there. One question asked right at the finish, are you going to do it next year? And and sometimes it takes a few minutes or a few days or a few weeks before you can say, heck yeah, I'll be back. But but this year, I I think I, my answer to you was, yeah, I want to do it again. I want you to come do it with me, friend. <laughs> well, and that's the whole thing is that, yes, there's the performance element of this and there's the nutrition and the struggle or whatever. But really, to me, the secret sauce of this event is the emotional impact that it has on the participants. You know, I post up on race day at the finish and I talk to as many people as I can, you know, top riders, elite riders, the winner, obviously, but well back into mid and towards the end of the pack. And my question to them is always just like, take me through your emotional journey out there. Cause like Ben, like Ben said, it's an emotional journey. I mean, this race is too long for you to feel good the entire time or to feel bad the entire time. And as your physical state goes from, you know, excitement to, probably expending a little bit too much energy to disaster of having suffered a flat tire to then catching but you know it's this it's this twist and turn of emotional highs and lows and by the time you get to the you know mile 206 or whatever you've had so much different so many different emotions on the day that people some are catatonic some are like laugh crying um but you get a lot of you get a lot of people who are like open who are really open at the finish line you know we're normally we're pretty all of us are kind of guarded with our emotions people at the finish line it's like they've undergone like three hours with dr phil or something they are an open book yeah i just think the amount of expenditure people are the pretense and as you say, like the normal protections just get stripped away and you are exposed and there's no way to hide that at all. Um, I enjoyed reading the piece Amy Charity did uh, via Cycling News talking about that of like the, the bonds that get formed between not just writers, but support staff and other people out there experiencing that together is that yeah, once, once you've seen each other, you know, on your knees, dry heaving. <laughs> it's time to get honest, but you've got no choice but to be honest. And, and yeah, as storytellers, I think we we appreciate being able to to get cut to that chase. Just it just takes ten to twelve to eighteen hours to get there. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to pay. You know, in therapy hours, that would be like thousands of dollars. But for this one, all you have to do is pay your entry fee, and then you have that therapy for free. So when I think back. On the 2021 edition of this race, there are a number of talking points and sort of 30,000 foot topics there that we'll, that we'll get into. You know, obviously the return to racing, being back at big mass participant events is big. Within the race itself, though, some of the dynamics that really showed themselves and people talked about at the finish line was 
how fast this year's race started, how in years past, even the front of the field has kind of treated the first two or three hours like a glorified, not neutral, but like they're going hard, but they know it's a long day. And so people tend to sort of cool their jets, whereas this year people exploded and really gunned it. And that had consequences for a lot of riders uh, in the second part of the field. The other big talking point was the wind this year. I mean, it's the Flint Hills. It's windy all the time. But this year, the winds seem to be especially cruel. Maybe it was because of the course design. uh, But, you know, it seemed like the tailwind came early, which meant the back part of the race was either block headwind or sort of this head crosswind. And that just added to the dynamics of suffering and even to the finishing time. You know, we saw slower finishing times this year. I was out on course and we had these approximate times of like, hey, the rider should be coming through this checkpoint or this spot at like approximately this time. And even the front pack of five, like they were a good solid 20 to 25 minutes slower where the anticipated time was through these checks through sort of like mile, you know, 80 through 150. And so Ben, I mean, you know, take us, take us through the wind and the fast start. How do you think, how did those two dynamics shape your own experience out there? Yeah. It's interesting to look at the hour by hour breakdowns, you know, whether that's exactly or doing the power analysis on bellnews.com or just looking at writers, Strava numbers. Yeah, it was quick. You know, the front average 20 miles an hour, hour after hour, after hour, um, and the, the roads out there are slow. <laughs> Rolling resistance and how how slow those roads are, um, it's it's difficult to convey that. You know, I know we, we face a similar thing trying to explain visually how rough cobblestones are, right? Because you look at photos of cobbles and they look quaint, right? It looks like just a nice little path. And it's, and it's hard to visually con- convey how terrible they feel to ride across. Um, I think there's a similar dynamic with with the very sharp flint rocks and how how much grind that adds to to the whole process and then when you put wind in the mix when you're trying to choose a line and often there there would be a good line or two good lines you can't just do a nice easy double pace line or echelon the way you could on the road where you can sort of switch your brain off and just get just slot in a position and know you, you can do a lot less work without having to really pay attention until you get to the front, you do your turn, you drop back in. There's none of that <laughs> at, at Unbound, or there's very, very little of that. And uh, so even when you are in the draft, uh, you're still pushing much more than you would uh, on the pavement. And then often it's a choice of like, do I want the draft or do I want to see where I'm going so I don't crash on my face? Uh, it's interesting listening to Boswell talk about how cautious he was uh, in a lot of spots because he's like, yeah, I, just, I don't, it's just, you know, had a traumatic, traumatic brain injury, does not want to repeat that. Um, so he'd give himself a little extra room. Just, you know, speaking with some of the lifetime folks this morning about videoing that front group in the closing miles and, and saying, yep, he was right about that. He would often be the last to the corner, would get gapped off and have to chase back on down hills. And I think that just speaks to how much uh, power he's got and that he could ride so inefficiently on such a long day and still still take the win. Well, interesting dynamic in both 
the elite men's and women's races. So both Ian Boswell, who wins this event in a sprint, and Lauren DiCrescenzo, who won with a long breakaway as being the only woman out there, um, are have recovered from traumatic brain injury. Both of them have suffered terrifying crashes in their life. You know, with Lauren, I mean, flip of a coin, she might be dead. Um, and Ian, you know, world tour pileup, traumatic brain injury, months and months of work to get back to racing with Lauren. It was years of rehabilitation and stuff. And same thing with her. I talked to her at the finish and she said, you know, I, there's just risks that I'm not willing to take anymore. And, you know, talking about the the nervous start, she felt herself caught out by the nervous start. She had to make up a ton of ground throughout the entire race because of some flat tires, but also because she just looked at some of the risks that people were taking this year. And this speaks to the fast start and the fact that people are willing to take some of these early risks. And she was like, ah, I don't want any part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what is, so so much of gravel racing, so much of our lives are a double-edged sword, right? Like part of what makes gravel so cool also makes it dangerous. It's fantastic that 1,000 of us can all go barreling down a dusty gravel road at dawn where it makes for great photos and videos because it's basically like London fog visual conditions from the dust and the sun reflecting off that you can't see diddly poo <laughs> for a lot of it. So you're just trusting the the tens or hundreds of riders in front of you not to do something stupid. Um, inevitably something stupid slash accidental happens. And yeah, so there was a fair amount of crashes early on in that first hour or so. So that was a stressful chunk. And everyone's thinking the same thing. It's like you see in, in any type of race, everyone knows the best place to be is near the front, but not at the front. But all 1,000 of us can't be in 10th place. Um, there, so there's there's a bit of, uh, on the most part, there's you know, respect for the order of things of like, okay, the fast kids get to be at the front. No one's trying to push Amity out of the way or Lauren's out of the way. Then they were mostly allowed to set the pace at the front. Um, but yeah, it was it was quick. I was, you know, I had a, I was in 50-11 for a lot of the time in that first hour or so partially because of the tailwind, partially because of the mass group. And then secondarily, when we got to the first uh, pinch point of the day, what I was calling the, the Orenberg force, we need to name some of these sectors. Um, like mile 26 to 30 or so, it went from being a fairly standard uh, gravel road to a pretty narrow, seldom traveled two track. Again, people knew they needed to be up front there. And and as paces accelerated, the field accordioned out, you've got hundreds of riders accordioning out. It was just flying through there, um, which makes for, for uh, compelling racing and also less than uh, mellow feeling racing. So for me, there's this in the, I've only done this twice, but it seems there's, there's two parts of the race. There's the first hectic part when there's a thousand people going ballistic and you can't see anything. And then there's the second part, which is much, much longer, not equal halves, where it's small groups down to being by yourself out there forever, dragging your carcass across very slow hills with lots of elevation. So it's, in, in some ways, it's sort of a relief to get to that the slog part, which makes up the bigger part of the day. 
And, you know, I was out there on course on this Jeep leapfrogging ahead of the race because, you know, here's the thing. Like this event goes on in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. There's no cell towers around. There's no ability to televise this. I know Flow Bikes did a, a very good job of having a live broadcast and bringing live pictures from sort of the last 20 miles of the race. But for those of you who are like, ah, why do we get to see the whole thing? It's like, yeah, there's, you know, this might this thing might as well be taking may as well be taking place on the moon and uh, broadcasting a race on the moon is very difficult. Um, I was leapfrogging ahead of the race and I saw that exact dynamic play out, Bendelani, that you were talking about, which is the fast, nervous start, people fighting for position, you know, the whole pack, thousand strong with the lead riders at the front driving the pace. And, you know, then at some point things start to break up and then it becomes this attrition battle. So through the first 40 miles, I'd say the, the group was pretty, um, pretty together. We saw some of the favorites at the front. You know, I saw Quinn Simmons. I know he had, it sounds like he had an early flat tire, but was able to catch back on. He was up there, Colin Strickland, all the, a lot of the pre-race favorites. Jeremiah Bishop was off the back, but it sounds like Lawrence Tendam had a flat tire and was able to fix it fairly quickly and get up there. But by the time I went from 40 miles to like 60 miles, there was a very established front group of, I would say, about 20 um, you came through in like two, like one group or two groups later. Ben, you were way up there. But in that front group of 20, the the stars I felt like who were missing, Eddie Anderson um, was not there. Keel Reinen was gone. He had some insane day where he had to like walk and run in his shoes forever. Um, and, uh, you know, Bishop was gone. And then uh, Payson McElvin, who was, I guess was recovering from sickness. So he wasn't going to be up there. No, his, he, he had a disaster of a mechanical day, like massive sidewall tear and yeah, he he had a, a he had a bona fide unbound gravel type day like many of us did. And it's one of those things like if 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 you get to sixty miles and you're in that front group, then you have a chance to contend. If you get to sixty miles and you're not in that front group, it's like game over. Um, at the first feed zone, which was sort of like uh, ten miles or so later, it was even smaller. You know, Quinn Simmons was out; he crashed on a descent and cut himself up, abandoned the race. Uh, Matteo Jorgensen got trailed off at some play- point in there, and he was gone. I spoke to him before the race. He was like, "Hey, I just did the Giro. I am exhausted. I kind of didn't, kind of like haven't been planning for doing this race the entire season. It sounds like this assignment was sort of a kind of a last minute thing for him." So. He- yeah, he seemed real tired. But, you know, like Travis McCabe was up there, Robin Carpenter, some of the road cyclists were up there doing looking good. And then by mile 100, it was down to eight. Um, and then by mile 125, it was five. And those five, Colin Strickland, Ted King, Lawrence Tendam, Ian Boswell, and Peter Stetna. And I thought the interesting thing about that was, you know, I mean, look, Boswell, this was his first time there. Lawrence Tendam, that was his first time there. But it was kind of these established gravel dudes. And it was very much the world tour to gravel. Plus Colin, who is, you know, our, our lovable weirdo with like the commuter fixie guy background. But it was like the world tour to gravel guys and Colin. And that was going to be the the front field heading into the finish. And then for the women's field, that's another fascinating dynamic. I feel like both as a as a journalist and then as a participant, like I'm, I'm of the camp that I think it's cool that we all race together. Um, so being able to see how... Uh, women raced differently. So for instance, Amity is a team of one and uh, she will trade pulls with whomever she's riding with. Uh, other women came as parts of a team set with not only female teammates, but male teammates. And they raced as a team, went in with like a team objective, uh, whether that was like the Abus team who's, you know, formerly Pan Eraser, uh, where 
you know, at one point Scott Monitor came up to me looking for his protected rider and dropped back to find her, make sure she was good. Uh, or helping with with his you know, change tires or just keep them out of the wind. There's there's that dynamic going on, like with the cinch team, which Lauren de Crescenzo rides with. So I think that's that's interesting to see how how we've got these overlap between solo versus team dynamics and then male female dynamics all all going in the race and then all that is overlaid on the top of the individual roller coasters that people are going over in terms of feeling bad or feeling good you know, like one point ended up with towards the end with Payson and uh, Ryan Standish who had both had had days they'd had days and they were taking turns feeling good and feeling bad and you know, Payson would be sitting on like, oh, I'm just cracked, man. And then the next, two, you know, next minute he's going 28 miles an hour, just mock Chanel, like his, the coat kicked in or something. So all those things of, of make it very lurchy individually and, and with the race as a whole. So that's another fascinating aspect of this race. Yeah. In the women's side, you know, we saw uh, it was Dick Crescenzo's teammate Flavia Oliveira get out to a really sizable lead. Sounded like she had made one of the, you know, second or third uh, main groups and was up there. Um, and then at some point, I think she had some punctures and Lauren had caught up to her and right up in the mix too. I believe um, Emily Newsom was up there for a bit of team Tibco, but really, you know, Amity made this late, late surge kind of like she did in 2019 to win to leapfrog into second place. And like you said, Amity rides as a team of one. Um, she said afterwards that she had to go much harder this year to get second place than she did the year she won. But, you know, we posed that question to her afterwards of like, hey, you know, you ride in this team of one, other women, you know, they'll come in with uh, a, a female teammate or like you said, you know, a, a group of men who are kind of there to help protect, take her out of the wind. You know, what do you think about that? Would you want to have a dedicated women's field? And she said, no, you know, like if, if you separated the women's field from the men's field, I wouldn't participate in it. I wouldn't consider it gravel like I want to be in there with everyone because that is such an important part of the experience. And, and I thought that was really interesting perspective coming from her, even be, because, you know, that puts her sometimes at a disadvantage, but she would rather have like, you know, ride with everyone else than to have it separated. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool dynamic. And yes, there's there's the very sharp pointy end of the race with these current and former world tour stars there. But so much of the meat of these fields is made up by amateurs, right? And even for amateur racing in the US, it's spliced down into not just gender, but age group. And so uh, as a participant, that's one thing that I really appreciate is being able to ride with all my friends across the the spectrum instead of just the same old six 45 plus, you know, gray haired guys that, that I normally go around in circles with here in Colorado. So in the front in the front men's field, it was this group of five. And something that I thought was really interesting was I positioned myself at the uh, neutral neutral water station at mile one twenty five, and these five five guys come in for the neutral water stop, and they're filling bottles and they're like lubing chains and stuff like that. But they totally did the thing that Colin Strickland wrote about in his column that we published on VeloNews.com last week about waiting for each other in the feed zone. Like these guys came in, and um, Ted King started pumping up a tire and, you know, they're filling up bottles and uh, Stetna 
has to like lube his chain, but his lube bottle isn't working. He's kind of futzing around with it. And Lawrence Tendam goes to like have a nature break. Meanwhile, Colin is done early filling his bottles and um, Boswell done early with filling their bottles too. And like, they could have just like taken off and bailed, but like Colin is like standing around cracking jokes with the few reporters who are there and Boswell's like posing for the cameras and they kind of, they waited till the last one was done. You know, Stetna was the last one and then they got on their bikes and rode off into the sunset together. And yeah, I talked about it at the finish line of being this sort of gentleman's agreement. They, they, you know, all these guys are friends with each other and they're like calling and texting each other in the lead up to the race, et cetera. But there wasn't this sort of a push to find an advantage here and there and in the final you know Stetna was aggressive he attacked Colin got dropped uh Stetna had some chain suck and had to get off his bike momentarily and that was it Boswell Tendam rode away and Boswell they came into the sprint together and Boswell wins the sprint and you know this is the biggest win for him of his bike racing career and it happens after He's retired from uh, World Tour Road Racing. I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. And in fact, we have some audio of uh, my post-race finish with Boswell. Um, let's throw to that really quickly, hear what old Ian had to say. What are the, um, what are the emotions right now, Ian? Uh, honestly, just surprised. Yeah. I mean, just to like keep making splits and then yeah I mean I guess in the last like 10 miles I knew it was gonna be between Lawrence and I and uh yeah I haven't won a bike race in a really long time so I don't know I guess both he and I are at a different point than a lot of the other riders out here so and I guess you have like nothing to lose compared to to some folks but uh I'm just surprised I mean yeah I've been I mean first time here and I mean you were there last night like I'm pretty I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm underprepared, but I guess because I'm somewhat underprepared, I also have less expectations on myself. You know, like every time I was like, sweet, we have 10 guys, I'll be top 10. Like, oh, sweet, there's five guys. Like, oh, there's three guys, and there's two guys. And yeah, I don't know. I'm like new to this whole thing. So even like, I just am still learning like what, how this all works. You know, like uh, calling flat at one point, I'm like, do we wait? Do we keep riding? You know, it's like, I don't know. I, I told Lawrence, like, let's just go to the line, take one, two but <laughs> you didn't want to do that, so. I know it's early, but how does this compare to what you accomplished in World Tour Road Racing? Um, again, it's just different because I'm not, it's not my job to race, you know, it's, so it's, I don't know, I did that event two weekends ago, the Rule of Three, and uh, I was much more cooked after that, and I was only 100 miles, so. I don't know, I mean, it's, as far as victories, it's probably the biggest victory, I guess, of my career, but, uh, yeah, it's just weird, because it's not my, I mean, like, I fly home Monday, and I start work again, you know, so it's, yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting stuff, Ben. I thought one of the th interesting things he had to say there, and he referenced this, but didn't totally reference it, was basically saying, the night before the event, he was still kind of unsure about some of these Unwritten rules. In fact, he was staying at the same place we were and we were all sitting around and he was asking us questions about like, well, what do you make of the whole feed zone truce thing or the unwritten rules? Like you could tell that he, you know, it was the night before this big race and he was still kind of trying to wrap his brain around it. Oh, for sure. And the same with like Adam Roberge at uh, the Gravelocos and then an Unbound of like, well, yeah, when do we attack? When do we, when do we, 
raise the truce. Um, what, what are the the rules of engagement here? And and like you mentioned, when the race is on, it's on. Like you know, Stenna dropped a chain. And it's not like they pulled over. Like sorry guys, it was like bummer, dude. <laughs> I'm sure they did not you know, let off the pace ever so slightly because it's like uh, you know neutral road racing in or neutral in uh, pro road race. If it's early on and the yellow jersey has a you know, spectator cause incident or something. Yeah, maybe they'll ease off a bit. But in in the heat of battle, if someone flats, there's no there's no timeouts. So I, I think it's a great I think it's a great balance. I think it's fun to watch. And and yeah, no one's no one has it figured out. Um, you know, a, a popular overuse saying is that there are no rules in gravel. Um, and then people will quickly say what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But I think another apt thing is that no one has yet completely figured out gravel. No one has yet cracked the nut of gravel. gravel. Um, and that's, I think, part of the allure is that uh, it's it's a still developing thing that no one has yet completely dialed in. Yeah. And, I, you know, just to see Boswell, the guy who ended up winning it, sort of working it out the night before to me was really interesting. Um, another interesting dynamic is that the fact that he won, I mean, he was, I did not pick him. Once he made the, the group of two, I thought Tendam was going to win. And the reason that Boswell was off of my radar screen is because, I, you know, I think we actually had him on the podcast um, last year talking about his retirement from World Tour Road Racing and his his launch into gravel. And his attitude was very much like, hey, you know, I'm actually, yeah, I'm training sorta and racing, but I'm not gunning to win these events. Like I am a full-time employee with Wahoo. I manage athletes. I have a desk job. I have a day job. Yes, I still ride and I still train, but like I am not a full-time cyclist anymore. And I, I believe that. I totally, I buy that. I mean, I've talked to him about what his day is like and what he does with Wahoo. And, and that's very true, but it's just a testament A to how strong he is and how physically strong he is. But, you know, also to how smart he was during that race. Like you said, he was not taking unnecessary risks. He was riding and he didn't have expectations. That was the other part was that I think a lot of these guys now come in because they're dedicated gravel elite riders and they have sponsor obligations and they put themselves a lot of pressure on this. You could tell Stetna was so focused on this race on the start line. He was like chiseled out of a block of marble, so focused. And Boswell came in and was like, "Eh, you know whatever, whatever, whatever. Like I, I don't have anything riding on this and that type of attitude helped him win. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you know, Colin spoke similarly to our, our colleague Betsy Welsh about his secret sauce. It's like, just trying to be chill, man. I don't know if he was able to actually pull that off. He was pretty frantic in the days before constructing his bike. You know, we went to do a pro bike feature with him and the guys just got pieces all over. He just, I went to do a pro bike check and there was a frame hanging in the stand and, you know, wheels were nowhere to be seen. The tire was over here and he, he built a, uh, a hydration pack from scratch the night before the race. Um, maybe that's focus. Maybe that's a very chill focus. Maybe that's manic energy, but... Yeah, in, in true Colin fashion, you know, Colin, he was very open to me. He said, look, you know, I, I want to do well in this race. I don't have the racing miles in my legs. And like, I have some long rides, but I'm not at the same fitness I was in 2019. So like hoping for the best. But yeah, the other thing there was like, uh, his unfortunately, his race bike didn't show up on time. His wheels were sent to Austin after he had already left. And so there was sort of a gear thing that happened where he eventually got his bike dialed in. But I think there was some last minute 
stress and some like standing around building the thing up, but yet more fun of, of gravel racing where it's like, you know, this isn't a world tour race where there's giant team trailers and armies of swanyers and mechanics helping everyone out. It's like, this thing is, this thing is still pretty raw. Yeah. And, and rolling with the punches is, is key, right? How are you? And that's, and that's kind of how gravel events have built themselves. Like, okay, you, you know, something's going to go wrong. At some point, something is going to go wrong. How are you going to deal with that? And that's part of why you go to these events is to smash yourself and, and see how you, you end up. And being able to be your own mechanic is, is uh, a huge advantage, whether that's like, you know, quickly addressing a puncture and getting back in. Like I was amazed how quickly uh, Lawrence was able to make it back into the front group. He flat at like mile 17 or so. And just a few miles later, he's making his way up through the hundreds of people uh, just, you know, clawing up through the, the rocky, dirty gutter. So in the women's race, uh, Di Crescenzo, you know, she was riding with her teammate Flavia Oliveira in this like third or fourth big men's group. Uh, I think Oliveira ended up having flat tires or something and, and bailing. And she, you know, uh, Lauren ends up being out there by herself for dozens of miles and holding on and, you know, surfing off of some guys, but being by herself sometimes and ends up taking this big win. You know, she came to the race in 2019 and crashed and broke her collarbone and had like a really unpleasant experience she told me at the event and she actually chalked some of that up to like i think i was still like dealing with some after 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 effects of tbi where like i had these attitude these mood swings and stuff like that and would get very frustrated Um, but this is i mean this is a huge win for her because like uh boswell like lauren crescenzo is a full-time worker like she is not a professional cyclist she works with the cdc in atlanta um she is she writes code she is working on research around tbi um as a master's degree and she told me you know she trains about 12 to 13 hours a week long rides on the weekend only rides five days a week uh, but you know is like does a lot of intervals and has cut way down from her time when she was an up-and-coming pro cyclist but you know huge huge um bookend to her comeback like 2016 crashes San Dimas, like very scary crash, flip of a coin, she could be dead and, you know, spends weeks in a coma and an ICU, wakes up in the rehabilitation center at Craig Hospital in Denver. And that begins this like months and years long process to like get basic life functions and get back to being a functional human being. Um, and and now she wins this race. I mean, to me, it's this, it's this, incre- it's an incredible story. It's one of those like incredible comeback stories that you come across ever again, now again in bike racing. I was at the local coffee shop by my house one day in 2019 and happened to be sitting next to Lauren and we just struck up a conversation and she told me the whole thing and it was like, uh, oh my God, talked to her parents about it. You know, her mom talked about, you know, what it was like to be in the hospital, seeing tubes coming out of her daughter. I mean, just... No, I can't. I can't. I cannot imagine it. The whole thing is just blows my brain. So to see her win this race, like a week after getting married, I mean, just. Yeah, that's the, that was our honeymoon. She and Jim were talking about. Oh, oh yeah, they just got married a, a week ago here in Colorado. And so, you know, afterwards, there was some discussion online I saw about, oh, well, you know, Lauren, she rides for Cinch. That's Tom Danielson's program. Tom Danielson, as we all know, like, hey, you know, he confessed to doping during his career. He um had a second ding with usada um and so there was this sort of stink and bad feeling of you know lauren being on this team thanking tom danielson and can we cheer is she someone that we can cheer for etc and look i get it i 
I understand people's feelings on that. My feeling personally is that the Lauren story and Lauren as an individual and the ride she had is so far outweighs the fact that like she gets training advice from Tommy D and you know, you may not like him because of the whole doping thing. Like me personally, you know, that's how I feel. Um, People are obviously free to feel how they like, but when I when I add up the components of the Lauren DiCrescenzo story, it's it just blows my mind. I guess you know the more retired world tour personalities come into gravel, the higher the chance that you know some of world tours past comes along with it, right? Um, you know, Thomas Decker was on the start line for Unbound Gravel this year. Uh, his book Descent. Uh, is a quite fascinating read where he just lays bare <laughs> what what he did and what he uh, accuses others of doing during his time. Like most of the Rabo Bank. Um, so yeah, we're not we're not completely clear from from that past. Uh, I would like to hope that we don't start seeing stories of doping going on in gravel racing currently. Um, <laughs> if if it, if enough. If money gets involved, then perhaps it could go that way. But I'm I'm grateful that as of now, to my knowledge, that doping to win gravel races is not yet a thing. No, it, fingers crossed, and it's cycling. It, you know, everyone points at this as well. Gravel is in these early phases, and it's cycling, so it's probably going to progress along the right along along the lines of road cycling with teams and cutthroat tactics and doping and all these things. But there's no guarantee that that's going to happen, and. Um, there, I, I still think there's the potential for gravel to hold on to and maintain some of its charm. And I think that the mass start part, mass start is uh, one of those elements. And, um, you know, the fostering this sort of spirit of um, com- camaraderie mixed with competition. Yes, we want to win and it's competition, but at the end of the day, it's also about camaraderie and like honoring the person who won and honoring your competitors. So while that stuff may seem pretty silly, like I know people sort of read this Colin piece and were like, that's dumb, you know, this is silly. It's like, it is, but it also speaks to a larger point around where gravel is right now, which is this community and this racing modality, you know, this, this racing format that's getting a lot of attention, but still trying to hold on to like, some of the spirit of what it originally was. Yeah, for for the great majority of people there, it's a recreational activity, right? <laughs> um, and for the, for those fast men and women at the front, it can be part of their business. Um, but yeah, it may sound corny, but I do think it's wonderful that honor and integrity are key to to these fast folks at the front, and something that they're eager to defend. So that would happen. That's what happened to the elite side of the race, Ben. But who cares about, you know, who won or the elites? I want to hear about your side of the race. Come on, Ben. Let's give us the uh, the emotional and the very physical replay of how your day was out there. Well, I just, it's just maybe the, the highlights and the lowlights. It's a, it's a long day. Don't need to bore everybody with the whole thing. Uh, short bits. I continued my annual tradition of flatting at mile 25 there into the, the, the Arnberg Force. Um, and that was the the halfway point for the, you know, the tail of the two different races going from being in a giant group where, Hey, there's a big draft just to save me from this win uh, to, okay, I guess we're going to see who we can settle in with now and see how the rest of the day goes. Um, unlike 
the previous year when I did basically everything wrong that you could do wrong and was roadside for like 20 minutes before getting going again. Uh, this time, a couple of Dyna plugs and a CO2 and I was on my way in, in a few minutes and then realized after a few minutes, oh, my saddlebag is dangling open. I'm probably strewing my much needed supplies all over the earth. So still some things to improve upon. Um, but yeah, just had a single flat, which for Unbound is, is pretty good. I was riding for a while with Zach Allison, who's much stronger than me, but his tire situation kept putting him back with me multiple times. So he would, he'd ride away from me. He'd flat, I'd pass him. He'd fix his tire. He'd come back and, and like the fifth or sixth time this has happened, he's like, you know, I never believe people when they'd say they would have seven and eight and 10 flats. Like, how is that possible to flat that many times in the day? I never believed that to be the case. But after he had such a day, now he's not just a believer, but a evangelist of, of the horrors of the Flint rocks out there. So, I had, similarly to Zach, I didn't believe people when they talked about what a wonderful experience it was and why you should do it. And like our friend and former colleague, Nick Legan was the first that I knew of to do it and sold it, tried to sell it on us. And I thought it sounded terrible and I never would want to do that again. But, but now I've also crossed over to being, being a, an unbound gravel evangelist. So yes, Fred Dreyer, you too should take the start next year. Well, the last time we had the event, um, we had Spencer Paulison participate in it as sort of his swan song to Velo News. And he came on the podcast and discussed his experience there. And he, he started, he like started choking up. He started crying midway through retelling the experience of his, his first and I, at this point only um, race there because it is, you know, it, it ends up being this personal experience out there. One of the big questions I had for people out there after they finished was like, what does this event mean to you now? And they kind of talked about how beforehand it was this abstract, you know, this abstract thought of what unbound gravel was. Well, well, it's long. Well, it's hard. Well, you know, you, you know, these things about it coming into it, but then actually experiencing it and going through it and it, you know, it's, it's long and it's hard in a whole different way. And that is this mental, emotional way. And that is this, like, you know, it's this, this, this test because you could step off your bike if you wanted to, you know, you could, you're out there in the middle of nowhere. You're not going to win. You've had your fifth flat tire. The headwind is awful. You're just not having fun anymore. Everything hurts. You just realize like, I could stop this torture and punishment. And like a lot of people just find ways to get to the finish. And that way of finding a way to get to the finish sort of ends up becoming this lasting emotion and memory of it. Yeah, I think you know some key takeaways from that is for lots of folks is, is uh, answering the question, how do you handle adversity? And some of that is you allow yourselves to be helped by others. Like some of you think is like, oh, I'm hardy. I'll just do it all myself. And I'll just will my way through. And that's part of it. Like just, you've got to be a bit of a stubborn mule to go and do this thing. But part of it is realizing that we need each other, whether that's the folks in the checkpoints who are absolutely vital to any racer's experience. Like you just simply can't do it without people helping you with the checkpoints or that's other riders out on course as something as simple as, you know, taking turns in the wind or helping you with supplies, uh, or like emotional support. So that's, uh, for me, that's, that's a, a huge compelling part of, of the magic of unbound is, yeah, it does, does sound corny to say, but just how it brings people together, and we realize that we we need to rely on each other. And um, yeah, I was you know, very impressed by how other people's character 
shines through. Like Payson, for instance, like had a terrible day and he had every right to, to throw a temper tantrum and quit, but didn't and and was instead very helpful to others, myself included, <laughs> and was given the high fives and smiles to lots of kids along the way. And, you know, the kids are stoked seeing an event go by and it's it's neat for the participants. So the 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 collective momentum of the cycling community uh, helping each other and allowing each other allowing themselves to be helped I think that's for me that's the, the magic of this event yeah and piggybacking off of that Ben you know last talking point I'd love us to talk about is just the feeling of being back at this event but also just being back at a big mass participant cycling event and being back at a bike race and you know these are uh, I have it uh, you know, I hadn't been to a big bike race like this in more than a year. Um, seeing people because of COVID that you haven't seen in forever. And look, I get it. You know, we're not at, totally out of the woods with this pandemic, but a lot of us are vaccinated. And in going around, people were still wearing masks indoors, outside, not as much. And it really felt like a return to normalcy. People shaking hands, hugging, greeting each other, smiling, making eye contact, making human connection, being really happy. And I, I came into that thinking it would be a little corny or sort of like thinking, thinking just that whole concept. Oh yeah. It's going to be a thing I'm going to see, but whatever. That's not who won. That's not, that's, that's corny. And to me, that was the story of the event. Like Boswell won, Decrescenza won, kudos to them. The event went off. Great event that went off. But to me, the, like the lasting images of unbound gravel 2021 is going to be like the return to bike racing and like, the joy that that brings to people's lives. And, you know, they thought about doing staggered starts and they thought about no feed zones and sort of trying to do this like socially distanced event. And um, the, everything kind of came together very late about doing it the regular way, just with a bit smaller field, because uh, it sounds like the COVID numbers in the region fell you know, dramatically decreased. And so they felt comfortable doing that. But the more the people that I talked to, they just talked about how good it felt to be back at a bike race and how, you know, everyone I talked to was vaccinated and how they felt totally safe being back there. So I, I don't know what your emotions and your feelings were on that. But did you, did you feel safe and comfortable being back at a bike race? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm vaccinated. I understand that most other writers, if not, I, I don't know. I don't know the statistics. I don't know whether there's a way to track that. Anecdotally, it seemed most people there were vaccinated and that plus the fact that the event was outside uh, had me. I didn't really give it a second thought after after we landed. Uh, I talked to Brad Rowe this morning, our editorial director, founder of Peloton, our sister magazine. He was in Italy for the Giro, and he was just uh, talking about how stark a contrast it was visually being at the Giro, where there's no rider access, everything's cordoned off, everyone's in masks, uh, and then seeing images of what we were seeing like Boswell sitting on the curb after the finish and a scrum of reporters and friends gathered around and being able to see everyone's smiling faces and just how shockingly visually different that was than being at the Giro where no one stops to talk. <laughs> if you want a writer quote, that will be you know sent to you via WhatsApp. Um, master on if someone's crying or scowling or grinning, it's hard to tell because everyone's covered up. And I remember when... You know, Graham Watson and photographers lamented the the advent of big sunglasses and helmets in the peloton because it was hard to see the emotion on riders' faces, and and now we've got that you know times fifty with with faces being covered up. So um, 
Yeah, so to give you a long answer to a short question, it felt good, Fred, uh, to act like humans again at a at a human event. Yeah, I came in very much still with sort of like pandemic brain. You know, I, I think the first day, you know, I was walking around outside with my like neck gaiter up and sort of keeping my distance. And I can't remember exactly who it is, but someone like tapped me on the shoulder from behind. I believe maybe potentially Yuri and like gave me a big bear hug. And I was like, oh, that's right. That's the whole reason we do this thing. I'm vaccinated. You know, we're outdoors. Like the whole reason that we do this is to like make connections with people and hear these people who I've had connections with and I haven't seen in a long time. And it's like, it just it just felt really it felt really good to be back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and hopefully we'll just continue on this trend going forward. Fingers crossed. Well, it was Unbound Gravel. You can read a ton of stories from myself, Betsy Welch, Ben Delaney, the whole Vela News crew on the site. We're going to have more content coming out this week and next because there were so many stories to cover that we couldn't get to them all in just one week. Um, so stay tuned to VelaNews.com. Um, congratulations to Ben Delaney for a stellar finish. And we're going to leave you today with this super cut of audio of uh, participants from this year's um, Unbound Gravel. I have some names to give you. I don't have all of them, but um, Alexi Vermeulen, Jess Sarah, Colin Strickland, um, Garrett White, Lael Wilcox, Eric Marcotte, um, Travis McCabe, Robin Carpenter, uh, Taylor Lindeen, your 350 winner. Holy cow, that guy was amazing. And many, many others. So give a listen. I hope that it tapped into some of the emotion and the experience of that day. And I hope that it stokes your motivation and inspiration to go ride your bicycle because there are many, many, many fun bike events out there, not just Unbound Gravel. And um, I am so excited to get back to riding and racing our bikes. Now that you've done this event, what does Unbound Gravel mean to you? Dude, it's obviously an outlet for us to express our human potential. I mean, we all train, you know, very focused or barely at all, but we're using this special human body, you know, and and then you're, you're traversing the land where you get the, the food from, right? That's where it's harvested from, and you're using that energy from the land and you're crossing it with it. I don't, I don't know. It's a pretty cool thing. So I take I try to take care of my body to be able to continue to do that at a level where it's it's just a different experience. It's not not so much suffering. Of course, these types of things get to the suffer point, but it's you're just really present with it, dude. For me, this this is exactly what we need. We need to show uh, society what it's like to be healthy and not vulnerable, you know, and, and put this on a pedestal of these are. This is what we should be looking up to. So I'm glad that the event is on. I'm glad that everybody came out and showed how, how much they appreciate this stuff. And uh, hopefully they can inspire those around them, their family, friends, and community to stay this healthy. You know, like the, the standard is very low and, and it, it leaves the society very vulnerable in fear. So um, I'm glad that it's back on for that reason. And I'm glad to be here to show that. Just Sarah. I am from Encinitas, California, but I'm moving back to Whitefish, Montana, where I grew up on Monday. <laughs> My first time doing Unbound, um, I'm here with the Penarello Scuderia team, so we had four riders out there on the 200, and it was pretty hectic at the start, and I just like, knew that I was going to ride the pace that 
I could ride for the day. And I did that, and I actually got to ride with one of my teammates for probably like three hours today, Jamie Bestwick. I had one flat, and when I was with my teammate Jamie, and he stopped to make sure I fixed it, and I put two plugs in a slash and CO2'd it, and it held for the rest of the day. I had maybe like one low moment where um, after we left one of the water stations, I just gulped too much water and felt really sick, but I got through it. I think it was like the pace that I was riding at, and I pretty much left my map on all day and didn't look at the distance. I just was like, I'm doing this. I don't want to know distance or time. Like, <laughs> that was my strategy. Yeah, it hurts. Like, everything was hurting, and my butt felt like it was going to fall off. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just like, I just tried to keep it, like, I'm at a point in my career where bike racing is something that is, like, fun and something that I want to share with other people and welcome more people into the sport. So... I feel like I had a pretty good like attitude today. Like at the end of the day, I'm riding my bike all day. So how bad is it? Uh, I think I went through probably every emotion imaginable. Um, everything from you know a little bit of nerves at the beginning. Um, the nerves did go away pretty quickly. I think uh, pretty soon after we started. Um, it's normal before races, and then uh, just excitement, like especially in the beginning, and then excited the whole time. I was just so happy to be out there, um, especially for it being my first Unbound ever. I was just so excited to just be here. Um, but yeah, I definitely had some dark moments out there. Multiple dark moments, multiple highs, multiple lows. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a, an emotional roller coaster for most of the day. What was the low? The low point, I think, was probably the last 50 miles when I was just by myself. I think mentally that was the hardest part, um, just not having anybody around me and not really. I mean, I had people in the distance to look at, like, to try and catch, but, like, no one around me to ride with, so I was just kind of out there solo for the last 50 miles. I just know, I mean, I always tell myself that no matter what low point I'm in, no matter what kind of negative thoughts that I'm feeling at any given time, I know that it will pass. Like, pain is only temporary. Um, the negative emotions are only temporary, and, I mean, and it was, and I'm just so happy I pushed through that and was able to finish strong. I, t I thought I was prepared for the low moments, but uh, there were a lot of low moments. And uh, there was like one more, the first flat was the low moment. And then because it was quite in the beginning, so I, I was way back to like 18th position. And then somebody yelled at me like, you're in 12th position now. So I was really on a high moment. And even 2K later there was uh, water. So I was really happy, water, good position. I want to go for it. I saw the group in front. So I think, whoa, everything great. And then bam, again a flat tire. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't have a pump. So I was uh, asking at some uh, local farm if they had a pump, but there was nothing, nobody home. I had to wait, somebody throw me a pump. There was another low moment. And then I started again. I got to chase some people. And uh, yeah, then uh, it took a long time for a high moment, but the finish was the next high moment. <laughs> to keep going. Uh, yeah, it's difficult. The the one thing is there's not many options to, to stop. The only thing you can do is call somebody. And that would be a really uh, shame, you know? So that's the good thing. It's not easy, so easy to quit. And uh, you, you it's difficult to think, you know? Sometimes you come in a zone and you don't think anymore. You just go, go, go. And even the, the simplest uh, uh, sum, is this you can't uh, do in the race because like your brain is not working so that makes it more easy to keep going like uh, like a zombie <laughs>
And what was the reputation of this race to you before you came here? What what did you know the race for? Like the biggest gravel event in the in the world was told to me, and uh, and the hardest. So that's why I came. And you know, in the last two years, the race changed its name. Did that have any impact on you wanting to come here or not? Uh, not on me wanting to come here, but uh, to explain to people uh, in Europe which race I was doing was difficult. So uh, I told a lot of people the old name, and then they knew the race, uh, but with the new name, not. So now that you've done this event, what does the Unbound Gravel mean to you? It means uh, really lows and really highs. And uh, it's a really a challenge. Uh, when you've done it one time in your life, you can be really proud of yourself to, to, to get to the finish line. Uh, it was uh, kind of a roller coaster. Uh, started out great, make the front group. Uh, kind of had to chase through the rocky downhill section just because it was flat city. And then as uh, the group kind of formed and slowed down, flatted out of the group and uh, basically spent all day chasing in little groups. And so uh, you go, go through a roller coaster of emotions of can I be in this group or not? And you're constantly riding on the brink of, you know, breaking or crump bonking or cramping. And I just tried to ride that wave all day. And then uh, I started to run out of food. Thankfully, uh, second stop saved my life. Uh, and then the uh, next two hours were just super dark. You had to fight through uh, wind, hills. It was just unforgiving and just had to put yourself in a, a good mental state and just keep pushing forward, not stopping. And, and eventually you see that 20 miles to go and it's just go time. You're happy, you're driving to the finish line and you just can't wait to get going. And it's even better when you get a nice result out of the day. What was the lowest moment for you? Uh, probably the 170 mile mark, like right in there, there's 170 to 190, just dark. You're trying to think if you want to race your bike again, why you signed up for this. Maybe you want to pick up competitive chess or bowling as the next hobby, but you know, that was the, the darkest time. What can you say about the mental emotional challenge of this thing? Oh, it's that's like the biggest thing. I mean, you're just, there becomes a point where everything on your body hurts. Like there's just pain is just like, you're just engulfed in pain and you have to learn how to like, push through it and keep going. And I think that's kind of like, one of the cool things with this race is that everyone feels that, no matter if it's Boswell who's winning it, or the people who are finishing at the very end when it's 3 a.m. Everyone suffers and it's just like, Dude, it's, it's so hard. Like, even right now, like, the last two hours, I probably was, like, catatolic, catabolic, like, couldn't eat, couldn't do anything. And, like, fortunately, there was, like, five of us working together with a good group of Jake, McGee, and Joe, Schmaltz, and friends. But, like, I can't, I can't imagine doing that by myself, being out there, because you're just... It just wears on you. It just never ends. And like you look at your computer and you see how much more you have left. And that's the biggest thing is just being able to not give up. It's easy to give up. It's not easy just to finish this thing. So that's my other question is that at some point, it's just you against yourself, right? I mean, you could quit, you could go home, you could like flag down a car or whatever, not gonna win. So how do you like, what do you tell yourself to keep going to the finish? Oh man, I just tell myself just keep pedaling, don't quit. Like one of my goals, like I knew I wasn't gonna like 
be up there. I was like, I'll go as long as I can to see if I can stay up there with the top guys. But like my goal was just to finish the day and just to ride and like finish it because I've never ridden this long in my life before. I've never done 12 hours. And on gravel and this course is just like, I think there are multiple times where I wanted to quit and I was just kind of told myself, I can't, I can't just, it would be a waste of time and money and effort and I, you know, uh, you just can't, there's not really an option when you're out there. You're literally, there's no option. Like, you call someone up and you're sitting out there just like sulking the whole time or you keep riding because there's no one. So, did it feel like therapy? Uh, pain therapy, yeah. Electroshock therapy. I think afterwards, I'll, I'll appreciate it a lot more. But yeah, you definitely find yourself out there. <laughs> I think so, man. What does this event mean to you now? Uh, I think it's pretty special. I think it's cool to see so many people coming together in this town and I, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Like everyone told me and I was like worried and scared, but uh, I think the event now means like, it's kind of like, I want to see how well I can actually do it and learn how to actually be up there with those guys. And yeah, keep coming back to Emporia and keep racing Unbound and get better and better. So yeah. I raced it in 2019. Uh, I, you know what I love the most is just how much excitement there is around the event. So for me, it's actually like a shorter race. I race cross country, I race tour divide. This is like about as short as it gets, but I love that the community loves it. And you get this big send off and you get to compete against other racers. Most of the time I'm out there with like a dozen people and this is 125, so it's pretty special. What did it mean to be back at a big bike event? I mean, we haven't been doing doing much for 15 months. It was so cool, so unexpected. Uh, I really didn't think it would happen, so when I realized two weeks ago it was still on, I was like, I gotta be there. And that's, that's when I decided to come race. Uh, so, just super pleased that, that this is possible. But when you when you look at the big picture and you're like, everybody's out here, even if you're by yourself, you know everybody's out there doing their own thing. and. Um, you inevitably have dark times out there, but you know they're going to get better. I usually give myself one hour of having a pity party. And then usually it turns around after about an hour. Um, food always helps, too. If you can eat during those dark times and those low times, it turns things around. Describe your pity party to me for this one. Just like when you're, when you're climbing in a headwind and you're going slow and you think everybody's going faster than you and you just have to be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it take it one pedal stroke at a time and um, move forward no matter how slow I go. So then do you view it as a race or is it an individual effort for you? Like what are what's the mentality that you have for the actual Um I can't speak for other people, but for me, it's more about like this individual kind of journey out there, right? Like, it's so long that um, you, you can only kind of be concerned with yourself because you're gonna run into things that you, they're out of your control. So just, just try to handle those and move forward all the time, all the time. Always be eating, always be looking after your body, always be looking after your bike. And uh, I look at a 
it more like that rather than a race itself. Um, it just works for me doing that. I don't know. You never really know what's going on out there. No idea, really. You don't know how close the next group is. You don't know how close the next group is behind you. So you're just out there riding your own race, riding as sustainably as you can. And Do you think that helps or hurts the, the mental side of it compared to like a road race where you have splits and you know where everything is? It's definitely tough, man. Like you got to be super self-motivated. Like you, a lot of, you know, there's no... There's no motivation with the guy right there that you can see the rabbit, you know, the carrot or whatever, or like, or, you know, looking back and you see the group, you know, there's nothing out there. So you got to like be able to know how hard you can go and like how deep you can go without overcooking it. Um, it's definitely way tougher, which I think it's good, honestly, like for an event like this, like that's how it should be. Like you shouldn't have too much information. You should should be in the dark most of the time it's an ultra event like you're just trying you're just out there running your head like i said like, like i said the pressure the, the, the most happy i was was making it through the initial selections in the first four hours um, and after that the pressure was kind of off like that's where i just didn't want to make a stupid mistake you know i'm totally happy not being good enough to go on little egypt with the best guys like we can't forget you can't forget the palmares of guys like boswell and ted and you know those guys are really really good now that you've done this event, what does it mean to you? Uh, it was really, you know, I've been watching this unfold for a long time. Like, has anybody, any American, any bike, any bike fan, you know, has been watching this event get bigger and bigger. And I've been really interested just to see how it would fare. I feel like I'd love to break away. You know, I love kind of on-off, on-off efforts. Um, as you're in the group and the hills are rolling like that's exactly what this is so i wanted to see how i could do and i don't know i think i met or exceeded my own expectations so i'm stoked yeah this is great i this morning i thought i i would probably never come back here i was like this is scat this is scary it's hard it's uh this is a weird number right 200 miles is hard like we can all race really hard for six hours but you may get nine or ten and it's a different story um, but it's a blast. I mean, I think it's just like you just see everyone's face. Everyone's kind of suffering through it and I guarantee I'll feel it tomorrow, but pretty cool to accomplish something like that.